Your stories don't define you. How you tell them will. Hi, I'm Sarah Elkins, your host and chief storymaker of Elkins Consulting. Many of my clients reach out to me because they're in transition. Their children are hitting milestone ages. They want more from their work. They're hitting a big number birthday. And they want to develop clarity about their natural strengths, what their next adventure might look like. In this series, you'll hear me ask my guests questions to dig deeply into the stories that shaped their lives, stories that uncover patterns and may unveil insights into dissatisfaction and also where their strengths lie and where they found and continue to find joy. This podcast's intention is to have listeners think of their own related stories and how they tell them, discovering the internal messages that are limiting their success and discovering how to shift their stories so they become positive life lessons to move them forward. If you're curious about what it would be like to work with me, visit elkinsconsulting.com and schedule a one-time 90-minute StrengthsFinder session. Today, I have the opportunity to have a conversation with some people that we've been trying to connect for months and months. My friends, Andrew and Shara from Beauty and the Beast Publishing, and I'm eager to get started into this conversation. So thank you so much for joining me on Your Stories Don't Define You, How You Tell Them Will. I can hear that you're coming from two different places. So Andrew, where are you calling in from? I'm coming from, I'm calling from Atlanta, Georgia. Atlanta, Um, Georgia. Yes. I'm calling from Atlanta, Georgia. It's hot right now at this moment, and I'm trying to stay cool. But, you know, that's the South. (laughs) Yes. My son is in Illinois right now, um, finishing up some training and he's coming back here pretty soon. And he's a Montana boy. So he's used to dry. And he said, it's 80 degrees and so humid. He can't breathe. He's like, mom, I don't even know how they live like this. Oh yeah. It's terrible. It's terrible. But you'll get used to it. Yeah. I suppose you do. And Shara, where are you calling from? Well, I'm calling from sort of, um, indecisive weather at the moment, all the way in, um, well, mediocre weather in the UK, nothing like the temperatures there. <laughs> what part so, of the UK? I'm in London, so mm. I'm in South London. So, yeah, it's the centre. <laughs> uh-huh. I have a cousin on High Street. Okay, whereabouts? Because there's plenty of High Streets here. Yes. The area has got one. <laughs> I'm trying to remember. I think I actually have it. I'll look it up as as we introduce you. Um, I, I mentioned Beauty and the Beast Publishing, and um, let's start with you, Shara. If you could tell us something about yourself that most people might not know about you, that's how I like to start these conversations, so we get some context for what we're going to hear. Not quite sure where to start, but um, I'll go with one that I used to usually use um, is the fact that people probably find it a little bit unusual in the sense that I have an Irish grandmother who was born in Enniskillen. Yeah. <laughs> and she's still alive today. My um, only surviving uh, grandparent who's still alive, so she's very precious indeed. <laughs> wow, so, an Irish grandmother. And is she in Ireland still? I don't know. She's uh, here in Birmingham. She uh, left Ireland when she was uh, just before her 13th birthday. So um, she's been in uh, England ever since. Yeah, so she lives in Birmingham. Yeah, you- she did when you think about that difference in background, just the fact that that popped into your head as something different about you that people might not know. When you look back at your growing up, do you see that as having an interesting impact on who you are and, and what you've done in recent years? 
Most definitely, I think, because especially with the fact that I didn't grow up with my grandmother, I didn't meet her, I'm her first grandchild, and I was probably the last grandchild, uh, well, she's not met my uh, grandson yet, but um, I I'm, was one of the last, probably the last grandchild for her to, her to meet, so um, it's just, we met under very sort of odd circumstances, you know, um, in growing up, as it were. And um, yeah, so I met her when I was, I think it was about 25 when I met her, but I'd always wondered about her. So it wasn't until after I'd had my own child that um, I was very keen to sort of like put all the missing pieces together and yeah, and was able to find her and so on. So I didn't even have an address or anything like that. So I had to do a massive search. So yeah, it was cool. Um. <laughs> That sounds like a cool story. We're going to have to dive into that a little more after we hear Andrew's answer. (laughs) So, Andrew, what do you think? Do you have something to share? Um, To add on to that uh, about background. With with me, it's I don't know my origin because I'm a I was adopted. And, you know, usually in this day and time, you would think I would I would have reached out by now to find out who are my biological parents, but I haven't really even thought about it. Just moving along in this world with me, I find when it comes in the, in, the, in the ways it affects me, it's like I jump from people to people, right? I meet people throughout my time of living that just jump before, not in a, in a bad way, but it's just one of them things like, okay, I meet this person, cool, you know, we're, we're all right. Then I go to the next and I go to the next. It's just like, I'm just like I'm jumping around from like it's like a like a way of jumping from foster home to foster home to foster home in terms of relationships throughout my life. And, you know, hopefully I might reach out, you know, when I get the time to say, okay, well, let me see who uh, my biological parents are and just to reach out because I had never met them, never heard about them, don't know anything, but they were young and. You know, they gave me up for adoption, which was fine. You know, there's no hatred there with me. But, you know, it's just my background is totally different yeah. when, it comes to, that, when it comes to that. And that is something I wouldn't have known about you. So thank you for sharing that. And I can imagine how that would play out in life. I mean, I think we all have different dynamics in our relationships based on our relationships with our parents and and how we grew up. So not surprising at all, is it? I mean, yeah. You're, yeah. yeah, it's 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 just one of them things where with me, I don't think about it. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, it, it, some people, they might ask me like, well, has it affected you in any kind of way? Does it, you know, I'm like, no, nah, not really, you know, but then when I look at it, it's like, yeah, I keep jumping. I keep like I keep doing this quantum leap from here to there and here to there. I said maybe maybe it has affected me in some kind of way, but in but in a good way though. But in a good way, right? But, in a an yeah. adaptability way, the right, right. the and a resilience way. Yes, yes, yeah, and and I'm sure there are some negative consequences here and there, but I think we all oh, yeah, of course. experience that one way or another. I know. One of my big negative consequences of um, growing up with a bipolar parent was that we moved a lot. I went to four different elementary schools because wherever the next job was going to make him happy, we would leave. And um, 
So that definitely had positives and negatives on my life as far as like my ability to adapt and make friends anywhere at any time. I've never had a problem with that. Right. At the same time, you know, it's hard for me to, to imagine that we've lived in this house in Montana for 22 years, which is like kind of mind blowing. Because <laughs> my husband is a son of a Navy admiral, so they never lived in the same place for more than a few years at a time. So the fact that our boys have zero experience living anywhere else as children is just completely foreign to me. Oh, wow. Yeah. yeah. So it definitely affects us. Really, <laughs> so, Shara, when you um, when you think about Beauty and the Beast publishing, can you think of a, a particular incident or experience early on with this idea that made you realize this is it? This is like I'm on track for something really important or meaningful or whatever word you want to use to describe it. But particularly after um, meeting Andrew, it just seemed like everything just seemed to slot into place, you know. And we have been using that formula, whatever it might be, you know, um, that sort of connects us in terms of our writing and literature. Um, uh, particularly, it, it was a, I would say it was definitely when we published um, our first book. So we, we, I had a smaller company with a different name. Um, etc. And, um, you know, it was then when we, after we published the first book, it kind of dawned on me that we've, we've kind of got something here. And, but without saying so, it seemed as if Andrew was thinking the same thing because um, after it was published, he decided he was already writing, you know, um, you know, his second book and was very much all the way into it. And, for him, he had already made the decision. He was going to continue, you know, this, this journey. And, yeah. um, you know, we didn't have a business at that time, as I said. And, you know, he was just quite happy to continue. And and I was as well. And I was grateful for the opportunity um, because it was really him just sort of like probably feeling me out, you know, to see what, what I could deliver, et cetera. And, and also, you know, testing those waters for the first time, not knowing each other from anywhere being total strangers and um you know so after the first book was written and he was already undertake already very much way into almost completion of the second book um and decided that he wanted to continue doing this you know in the way that we had done I was keen for it but I wanted to solidify it more um rather than just be riding the tail of somebody who just needed to publish you know I didn't want to I wanted us to have something more authentic you know and something more meaningful um so um you know on, on the, the back of that I, you know I said well if we're going to do this you know and we're going to continue to do this you know let's do it properly let's you know at that time it was just a very small idea if I remember rightly and um you know we were just going to continue to write and we were going to do it under this the company name, which we didn't have at the time either. <laughs> you know, so yeah, we went away and, uh, you know, did that. Yeah. And so it was really that pivotal moment was after the first publication. Yeah. Ah, so Andrew, I, I'm guessing this is kind of your MO where you dive in head first and you don't really question it. You just do it because it, it's, it's right. You trust your instincts. So um, what was your moment? And yes, I did just jump into it, but I did have a little thought about it at first. When the idea of Beauty and the Beast, just the name, period, 
was brought to my attention. At first, I was like, okay, can we go with this Disney fairy tale stuff? I'm not really. Are you calling me a beast? (laughs) (laughs) Right. (laughs) You see what I'm saying? I was like, okay, here we go. And it reminded me of the old show, The Beauty and the Beast. It used to come on back in the day. I said, oh, my goodness, let me think about this. So I thought about it beyond that. And because of because of the work that we do, we try to you know help people and we try to help the socially disadvantaged and try to get people, voices out there that once are not unheard. It was not just it's not just the, the title of like a fairy tale, but it was more of finding beauty in some of the craziest situations, you know, mm-hmm. whether whether it's just it could be a negative situation and bringing that positive out of that negative situation and making something creative with it and just and, and just live your dreams and have and having a vision, a creative vision to just do what you want to do, however you want to imagine. And so that's so when I thought about it in that way, that's when I became more comfortable, like, OK, let's 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 do this because it equals up to our work and it coincides with everything that we all about. So that's why that's why I stand with it when it comes to the beauty and the beast. But the first thing I thought of when I I saw the title and started learning a little bit more about the company, first thing I thought of is seeing beauty where others miss it. <laughs> no, it's it seems like in general, um, it, within our our group of writers on the Biz Catalyst three hundred and sixty and all of those um, that platform. It seems that people see this particular group sees beauty where others have dismissed ugliness. And instead of seeing the beauty in it, whether that's through the lessons that people learn from it or the way they come out of it, more compassionate, more curious about others, however you want to look at it. That's that's how I saw the the name of the company. I'm not a big Disney person. I'm not a big Disney fan. (laughs) Although the music in that one is pretty fun with Angela Lansbury. (laughs) It's pretty fun. I I do have boys who were little at at the time of those movies, but I I love that you just said that because I hadn't really thought about that. And just just to add to that as well, I mean, um, you know, like Andrew said, you know, we're dealing with the socially disadvantaged, you know, so it's very beast-like, you know, um, it can be, you know, equivalented to to that aspect uh, of the company name. Um, but when they're able to sort of turn that around and to transition it, you know, into having their voices heard, now having that as a career for themselves, you know, and, you know, and fulfilling those dreams is where you find the beauty and the beauty is also in the truth that they tell, you know, in their stories and sharing those experiences as well. So, you know, it was all synonymous with everything that we were kind of, well, what we were experiencing at the time, you know. And, um, yeah. And when I put it, well, we had went through a, a few names, you know, but nothing sort of had the impact, you know, that we wanted. And then I had this name, the, the company name in the back of my mind, but I didn't know Andrew well enough at the time to just say to him, you know, so I was giving him all these explanations as to before I told him the name as to why I think we should keep it this name. And it wasn't because I saw myself in, 
any of it, you know, and I didn't see him in any of it either. I didn't mean it. You know, I just wanted to apologize beforehand, you know, before even mentioning it. And then this isn't about I, us, it's about yeah, the, the no. content and the people we'll be publishing. Right. Never about that. And um, you know, but I said it's so synonymous with what we're doing. And um when I spoke to him, it was just long pause and I just thought, <laughs> oh, <laughs> you know what have I done? You know, just step in it. You've only just started, you know. <laughs> and um, and then he says, "Yeah, I think we can work with that," you know. And then later on, he said he loved it, and I was like, "Yes!" You know, so, <laughs> no, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, you have to reframe it, just like just like the stories that you're helping people tell. So speaking of reframing, is there um, an author you've worked with that you have um, been able to get through to them about how to reframe their stories so that they are stories that people want to hear and can learn from as opposed to the way that I describe it? If you're telling a struggle story and it's 10 minutes long, you can't spend more than the first three to four minutes of it talking about the struggle itself. The majority of that time has to be spent talking about the resilience, the community you built, what you what changed, and how you got out of the struggle. So have you worked with a, an author where you really had to work through that with them where you can talk about that? We have uh, the, uh, um, a writing academy, and that's where those themes would come up but I suppose it does anyway just in general when we speak to when we're working with aspiring authors because that is our speciality and because they're not typically from the industry like we weren't um, you know we forged our own path and we're able to do that for others but in doing so we have to have that explanation um, because they've never published before so I think it's a theme that comes up quite often what would you say Andrew because he works with them quite closest uh, as well, probably more so than I do. <laughs> it's, it's a it's a few people that I have really worked with, but one that really stands out to me is um um he he's I'm gonna say this, he was formerly incarcerated. And I had to really urge him to get his story out in a creative way. I mean not in the not in the blatantly way of Oh, I was incarcerated. I did this, X, Y, Z, and this is what happened. But more of telling your story in a more relatable way where people can better understand. You know, and, I mean, because what I learned about any type of writing, it's all about the relationship with people of the world. What can you present that, what, can, what kind of struggle you can present that's their struggle, you know, and vice versa. And I really had to really just urge him and urge him and urge him. And, and then I've come to figure out that his thing was not really write a story. His thing was poetry. So he really created his story or what he wants to say through poetry. And, you know, for these past couple of years, I learned that people are more can more really listen to poetry than just stories because they can relate because you know it's 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 I guess it's the theme of the symbolism of things and mm -hmm. you know whether you're trying to compare your situation with nature or compare your situation with just you know that sense of home period that's relatable mm -hmm. to everyone. Because but a poem 
doesn't have to be um, as specific. You don't have to have as many of the specifics right. to to get people to understand and and see themselves in it. Yes, right, right, and you know, that's and that's cool. and and you know, and that's that's my pretty much that's my thing. I like poetry. I write poems. Really, I write. I will write stories, but poetry is my that's my pleasure. That's what I like to do, and that's what you know. Kind of find out that's what he liked to do. He didn't know this. It was just we were just really playing. Like, okay, what can you write? Can you write an essay? Can you write a, a, a collective essays, or can you write a, a fictional story? Do you want to write nonfiction, a narrative, or what? And he just he just couldn't get it. But then we tried with the poem, the poem thing, and he's not a poet, but he enjoyed he that even more. And, but yeah, exactly, he enjoyed that even more, and he, you know, and that's what he that's what he likes doing now. That's so cool, Andrew. What an insightful way to um, explore different options for getting that story out. I, I don't know that I would have thought of that. And I do a lot of that creative work with my coaching clients yes. to get stories out, but it never even, I mean, that's, that's brilliant. I love that idea. And how is he doing with that now? A couple years later. He, 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 he's doing, he's doing okay. He sees the world different. Mm -hmm. than just looking at a straight line. Because, you know, when I was working with him on his poetry, it was starting out, and I'm speaking just for me, my experience, I was more abstract. Mm -hmm. And I know being abstract, it's like it has no meaning like that, you know. But then I came up with the concept, well, you know what, poetry could be anything. It could be anything how I see it. Whatever I see it, that's what it's going to be. So that's where the creativity came out. And I basically told him to do the same thing. However you see it, if the line is square, let it be square. If, the, if you see a circle and it looks like a triangle, that's what it is. Just express it how you want to express it. So that's what he starts doing. So now he sees the world different from different perspectives versus that abstract and straight line of things. Oh, I love that. Uh, that's so important. And not just in poetry, but in all writing to be able to take that step back. And, right. and choose how you're going to present something, whether it's a, I, I think about so many books and movies that have switched up their timelines, you know, where it's not just a, a 1980 to 1985, you know, and these are the things that happened in between, but right. flipping it around so that you can look back and see it from a different perspective or look yes. forward and consider what that might look like in the future. And right. I, I love that idea. That's so cool. We've written screenplays like that as well, you know, where we start from the present and work all the way back, you know, so you're going back in time to when, where the starting point is, you know, um, and, and those are really quite interesting to write. Mm -hmm. Agreed. Agreed. Because our memories are so fallible and... Yeah. Being able to, one of the things that I do with my coaching clients is we talk about a memory they have as if they're an observer and not an active participant in it so that they can see the other characters as an observer, as opposed to the person that the character was being cruel to or the character who was being loving to, um, being able to see them at, in three dimensions. Because I know when you're looking at it from your own perspective, your own experience with that person it's hard to see them beyond the way they made you feel right 
Yeah. And and that second person perspective is very crucial. Exactly. I mean, even in, even in, I mean, writing and life period. And, you know, I do observations exercises when I have the time and I just observe people. I, do, I don't judge them. I just observe yeah. them, how they move. And I might go from there and I get my observation from there. And, you know, just that step back and just learning people and just anything. I mean, it's very, it's very valuable. It's very valuable. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Well, I, I love that because the, the idea that it gives your characters m- much more dimension than they would have otherwise. Right. right. <laughs> what were you going to add, Shara? No, just, uh, I totally enjoy uh, people watching. I've got a big appreciation for it just to have a snippet into someone else's life, you know, and, and what you might learn about that person, you know, in those fleeting moments. Um, those things happen to me, you know, just something would attract, attract me. Maybe if I'm, I don't know, in an open space, I don't know. I would say grabbing a coffee, but I don't drink it. But, you know, if I was at a, a, a cafe or something like that, it'd be something like that I'd want to do. It'd be the perfect opportunity, you know, to kind of sit and people watch. I could do that all day. You know, I love that kind of thing. Can you, can you think of a time you did that specifically? Cause I, like you immediately brought back a memory for me of being in a train station in Brisbane, Australia. So I was a study abroad student, 19 years old, sitting by myself, waiting for my train and broke. I had no money, so I couldn't even buy a coffee if I wanted to drink it, which I would have. But I remember this very vivid memory of just sitting there and taking in the movement, the, the, the way people were walking, the way people talked to each other, watching the children interact with adults and some of the cruel expressions I could see on people's faces to total strangers, and then the warmth that I could see between strangers, among strangers. So do you have a memory like that? Because it seemed like you did. Yeah, it's so funny you should say that, because when you were speaking, you know, you mentioned Australia, you know, which is um, where I lived for four years, you know, prior to the pandemic. So, and I would go to various coffee shops, or one in particular, and I would just sit there and have a hot chocolate and I would just sit there and I would just watch because, you know, obviously being not from there, I have more time on my hands, you know, kind of thing. And um, I would just sit there and, and people watch and, you know, the community is so different from here, you know, so alien-like, you know, everybody stopped and, and spoke and would speak to me and, you know, have, you know, enter into dialogue and conversation and so on and with each other and so on and just from such a small town and see so much happening and, yeah, it's very different from me, as I say. <laughs> Do you remember any anything in particular about that that place and and something you observed that just sticks in your memory? I, I observed that the last time that I was there, um, because I would go and come quite frequently, so like every quarter I would leave to just come back, um, just for a bit, and then go back again. Um, so um, I remember, like on the last occasion, I went back things were so different this time you know this lovely place I'd always imagined it was just so it was it's like paradise you know it was it was just like the best place you could be if you wanted to kind of slow down in life and just live in a very beautiful serene area um without having too much to do you know and just get on with just plodding along in life it was it was very much like we'd made it but on the last occasion when I went it was like the community there was lots of falling outs with each other you know and you know, I'd only been away a few weeks and I come back and I'm hearing, you know, all these stories of people not getting on and everything and not quite understanding 
where it's all gone wrong, you know. <laughs> and um, yeah, it just seems all seem to go. It, 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 you sort of hit with a bit of a reality check, you know, at that point, you know, and um, you know, with everyone feeling so disgruntled, and it was just before the pandemic as well, and it was just a very odd time. And I suppose for somebody like myself who was not from there, for a moment, I was thinking. It's probably a really good time to come home, you know, with all of this, you know, and 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 so said, so done. Yes, <laughs> you know, it was it was a, a very good decision, you know. I became a grandmother after that, so you know, it was um, it was all uh, maybe these, you know, everything happens. It's a cycle, isn't it, and a process. So mm-hmm. maybe those are the things that were warning me, you know, <laughs> before I officially I found out. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. What about you, Andrew? Do you remember? Because I know you're a people watcher too. Do you have a, a vivid memory like that of that kind of location and and something you observed? Uh, yes, I used to do hospice work like five oh. years ago. Wow. So, and <laughs> be me observing what they was going through, the pain, and just you know, and just having having that talk with them about what they're going, not just what they're going through, because I try to keep them away from what they're going through and try to, you know, keep their mind on things like, you know, just being happy. And I would observe at times when people might get ready to pass. And I I always would look and think like, what is this person going through? Why? I mean, how they're feeling, what, what's going through their mind through that last minute. And, you know, and when you think about it, it and a lot of people look at it as like, oh, wow, that's just sad and negative. But and then at the same time, I'm putting I'm placing myself from that second that second person point of view in their shoes. And really, it's really like a this is how you practice empathy. Right. I mean, this is where you take yourself. And put yourself in that situation and take and take everything that has been going on with that person. And you pretty much embody all that and you take it all Mm -hmm. in and you share that pain. You see what I'm saying? And Mm -hmm. like I said, it's an empathetic practice. And sometimes I feel that we all should observe people to see, like you said, okay, you might see. Uh, the faces of people may be angry and then you might see the warmth in people and then we don't know a person's story. Right. You know, I mean, we just don't know until really we just start spending time with people. And really it's like an open invitation to get to know these people too as well. Right. So, that, you know, that's where um, my experience, you know, dealing with those kind of situations. I, I love that, Andrew, because what you're expressing to me is an ability to be curious, uh, approaching every situation, including death as a hospice worker, with that that approaching it with this curiosity, without judgment. Of I wonder what they're going through. I wonder what this is like for them, and right. just observing it without attaching any value to it. Yes, exactly. And like I say, it gets sometimes it's draining. But, yes. but it's draining but but then once you get over that draining process it's like okay this is what has to be done and this is you know and, then, and like I said it's an empathetic practice that everyone should practice 
I'm assuming that you can see where this affects your writing. Have you noticed a difference since you um, had been in hospice work in your writing? In certain in certain things, I write yes. When it mm-hmm. when it comes to when I write, and recently I just wrote about um, it's called the manly thing. <laughs> so what the manly thing is about, and I I posted on Biz Catalyst too as well. Mm-hmm. What it, what it's about? It's about putting yourself in a woman's shoes, right? And you know, and I, I explained that you know when my dad used to say you need to put yourself in other people's shoes and walk them out in their shoes. You know, I was being funny. Um, saying, well, I would never walk in a woman's stilettos or Chelsea boots, right? Yeah, they're but, really you know, that uncomfortable. Was just, <laughs> right, <laughs> just to be funny. But, you know, and that was the whole thing about it because it's uncomfortable, right? <laughs> but but the whole point of that was to sometimes you have to get out your comfort zone and step in other people's shoes to realize their struggles. Mm-hmm. You know, because we all have a, a sense of complacency in our life. And sometimes with that complacency, we just forget about other people and we just look mm-hmm. over things and we miss the bigger picture. So, yes, that has played a lot in my writing of, so far, looking at the overall picture instead of just looking at my own. Right. You just reminded me of a moment I had with our younger son. We brought both of our boys to Italy for a couple weeks when they were, oh, gosh, nine and 11 or eight and 11. And we got turned around when we came out of the Termini train station in Rome and went the it out the back and ended up having to walk a mile around the train station before we could find oh, the wow. hotel where we were staying. And we had already been walking for hours. So we were all tired, but we get out the back and we start to walk around Instead of just going back through, which is what, you know, in hindsight, blah, blah, blah. But I am so glad we didn't because what we saw were hundreds of homeless people laying on the grates because it was early October and it had gotten chilly at night. Right. And our boys grew up in Helena, Montana, which is (laughs) not diverse. And we do have homeless people, but we live in a very cold environment. So we don't have the kind of homeless problem you have in bigger cities that have resources and sources for them. But they had not seen anything like that before in their lives. They've traveled to San Francisco and Washington, D.C. and Denver. They've seen a lot, but nothing at that scale. Hundreds of people along the backside of this train station. And I remember Max, who was eight at the time, came up next to me and he's super independent, but he came up next to me and put his hand into mine and he whispered, why are these people out here? And I said, cause they have nowhere else to go. And he got very quiet. He said, why are they on the grates? Because they're breathing that exhaust from the trains that can't be good for them. And I said, because it's warm, sweetie. And they're wow. cold. And I remember this look of, it, it was so complicated. Andrew and Shara, like for an eight-year-old to have these expressions fly through his face that were so complicated. It was so painful to watch and so important for him to experience, for us to experience together. And that's what that just reminded me of, of your story of putting yourself in other people's shoes, getting uncomfortable, being in a place that makes you uncomfortable. So you have to start asking those questions. Right. And not just what are they doing, but what am I doing about it? 
And what is my part in this? What is my role? How can I contribute to make things different? So I love that you just said that. It's so meaningful because you just popped that memory back into my head. So thank you. <laughs> it was such a beautiful and painful memory. <laughs> so Shara, when was a time where you had that observation that that changed things for you? I mean, we talked about Andrews and and the uh, being a hospice person, uh, being in hospice and taking care of people who are dying and trying to distract or help people get through it, the survivors of that. What, what was your experience that made you, that gave you that depth of understanding to do what you're doing now? Oh, I think, you know, prior to this, I've been working in healthcare, you know, for quite some time. And, um, you know, I'd always worked at board level. So although I'm not on the ground, as it were, you know, all these issues we, we made aware of, you know, so, um, and especially in some of the, um, uh, some of the um, facilities that I had worked in, um, it was definitely, I would say, in multi-diverse um, areas, you know, um, where people were just uh, suffering and, um, and, you know, and, and re- really going through a lot. And I think that, you know, you just have to have sort of, to have compassion and, and develop the skill of gratitude, really you know, for when you do have help, you know, and so on. And I know what it's like to, to not be well. And, um, you know, I, um, I can recall a time when I, you know, you've seen people not, not be well and help them and, and support them. But unless you really go through it as well, you know, um, you don't, may not have a deep appreciation, you know, for it. And, um, you know, I can recall a time when I was also very sick and, you know, I had to have two major operations within a three-month period, and uh, the first one unsuccessful, the second one was successful. As a result of, of that, I would say that it, it helped me to do, develop uh, compassion. It took me over a year to recover as well. So having that long-term illness made you have an appreciation even more so. And I got sick first, then recovered, and then started working in healthcare. You know, so wow, that'll inspire that. Yeah, it, you go one way or another. Either you never want to see it again, or you want to help other people not experience what you experienced. If you can advocate, and I think when you've been supported as well for so long within the healthcare system here, it's very different from the healthcare system you have there. And even though we do pay for it, and you know we pay through our taxes, etc., and it's a lot. It is. It's very expensive it's it's also got that free element you know if you're not well you can be treated you know and we have the best doctors you know available doing that um so after having that care receiving all of that and being so grateful you know for making it the other side you know when at times it didn't seem as if it you know it would be that way on a couple of occasions it, it was a nice way of being able to give back you know I love that. That's a, I bet you have some really good stories that we could dive into some other time about that experience. So um, for our listeners, what would you say about your business? What would you want people to know about what you do and who you serve and how to reach you so that um, our listeners can go to the blog post associated with this podcast at elkinsconsulting.com and connect with you and get more information? 
Um, well, I would say that um, in terms of our uh, demographic, it's um, really for people that come from disadvantaged uh, backgrounds and people that are definitely from not from the industry typically. Um, in also saying that as well, we do have the resources, so we don't turn anyone away. You know, we work with existing authors. You know, you are very keen um, to work with us because of our mission and what we do. Um, and I would also say that the the best way to contact us um, is via our website, which is beautyinthebeastpublishing.net. Uh, and um, outside of that, we are available on all um, major um, social uh, media net, uh, networks as well, and LinkedIn as well. We can be found on there. Um, and I do follow you on Instagram, so I see your oh, posts. Oh, brilliant! There. Likewise, yeah, yeah we do. <laughs> Andrew, anything to add to that? No, that's pretty much. Um, if you want to find us individually, we're all, like you said, we're all on pretty much every social media platform. Tell me your, tell our listeners your, your full name so that they can, we'll have the links. Like I said, we'll have the links at elkinsconsulting.com on this blog post with this episode. But just so that you can introduce yourselves, now would actually be a really good time for you to introduce yourselves now that people are just completely enthralled with your stories. Andrew M. Foster is where you can find me on Facebook and mm-hmm. LinkedIn and A.M. Foster on Instagram. And what's your background in writing and publishing? Uh, my background in writing and publishing is pretty much I started out blogging, really. I started out blogging, you know, just for fun. Really didn't take it all that serious. It was just something, pretty much just something to do, you know, and another way of trying to make pretty much some money, just some side money. But, you know, I like writing anyway. So, like I said, it was it was just something new for me to just get out of my comfort zone. And, you know, from that, I went on to meet Shara. And, you know, we got together as business partners and we just start publishing. That's cool. That's awesome. Shara, can you introduce yourself, please? So I'm Shara Lewis-Campbell, um, but you'll find me by my pen name, um, which is S. Lewis-Campbell. So it's Lewis-Campbell. And you'll find me in that name on uh, most um, media, uh, social media platforms. Yeah. Right. Uh, yeah, all of them. <laughs> and you've been doing publishing for a little while? I have. Um, I first started publishing when I was doing my uh, second degree in English. My grandson. Um, I my hear second... him. I love that sound. <laughs> <laughs> I hope he doesn't get any more miserable. So, um, yeah, so, I, um, so I, I've been publishing since I was doing halfway through my second degree, which was a, a, a BA in English. And... Um, and prior to that, I was just an average, uh, an avid reader. So I would read probably about three or four books a day, you know, just spend my time just lost in books all day. And um, yeah, and, but I always wanted to be an author. But so I'm the first in my entire family. And uh, yeah, and um, <laughs> that's awesome. Well, congratulations to both of you. Um, I, I see great meaning and impact in the work that you're doing especially helping people tell their stories in a way that's approachable and relatable and inspiring. I I just love the work that you're doing. So thank you for doing it. And um, I wish you all the best of luck. 
Are you ready to start your story portfolio so you have the right story ready to share when the opportunity presents itself? When you're ready to get started, my book, Your Stories Don't Define You, How You Tell Them Will, is available in all the regular places. And the audiobook version is available on Google Play and on my website, elkinsconsulting.com. As a special bonus for listeners, the audiobook includes two songs recorded by my band, Spare Change, in my living room in Montana. Also on my website is a free podcast interview checklist. It's available to download to make sure you make the most out of your next podcast interview. If you enjoyed this podcast, please feel free to rate the podcast and leave a review and let me know that you've done it so I can thank you properly. Thank you.